This is The Guardian. Today, why have British courts become a magnet for the very wealthy to intimidate journalists? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I had arranged to meet a contact who used to work for the Serious Fraud Office. And because of what I was reporting on at the time, which was the activities of oligarchs from the former Soviet Union in the UK, even if you're having what's going to be a pretty banal meeting with someone, if that person's come to the attention of an oligarch, these days often you have to take precautions. Tom Burgess is an investigations correspondent for The Guardian. And if his job sounds a bit spy thriller blockbuster, well, it's because it can be. I arranged the meeting on Signal, an encrypted messaging app. I drove along in circuitous way, did a big loop at the end, and we'd arranged to meet up in the car park right by the Thames in the middle of London, um, under the National Theatre. It's that kind of shadowy car park with the big pillars and the odd noise echoing around. So when your phone can't be tracked, you can't remotely activate a microphone on it or anything like that. And then um, met this guy, someone who had looked into these oligarchs and their, their big mining company. I didn't really think much more about it. And then a few months later, he sends me a letter that he's received from a big law firm acting on behalf of the mining company that these oligarchs own. To be clear... It's really unusual for a journalist to be publicly sharing sensitive information like this. I would never normally discuss any meetings, but what's happened here is that this is all now part of the court record and it's become public. Anyway, he he sends me over the letter he's received and I I read it with astonishment. It said, it said, ENRC, this is the name of the oligarch's mining company. It said, ENRC believes that on the 29th of September, 2020, You met with Mr Burgess at an underground car park near the National Theatre, London, in a clandestine manner, and that the meeting was deliberately set up in this way to avoid detection. I mean, sure, yeah, it was. But obviously I hadn't done a good enough job, right? Because the next line of the letter was what really gave me a chill. It said, you attended this meeting with notebooks and folders, one of which appeared to be an orange-slash-red notebook. That was quite chilling, to receive that message unapologetically. It says, we were watching you. This surveillance was just the beginning. Tom became a target of a lawsuit that turned his life upside down. Months and months and months and months go by of legal warfare before you get anywhere near a court. Huge amounts of money is spent. And that's why you get letter after letter after letter after letter after letter after letter after letter. All of them casting you as some sort of monstrous version of yourself. That's what you're battling with, the limitless means to keep that fight coming at you. 
This kind of lawsuit is described by press campaigners as being abusive and designed to stop reporting. From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, how the world's super-rich are using UK courts to silence journalists and the campaign to stop them. Tom, what story were you working on when you realised you were being watched in that underground car park in London? So for many, many years, I've been looking at the trio. Three oligarchs who operated in the former Soviet Union. Alexander Mashkevich, Patok Shadiev, Alexander Bragimov. Billionaires, all of them. Mashkevich knows a thing or two about making money. He founded Eurasian Natural Resources, a global mining powerhouse with 72,000 employees. Annual sales have topped $6.5 billion. And Mashkevich's personal net worth... This trio, they're able to capture some of the most valuable, most precious mines in Kazakhstan, this huge country just underneath Russia, which after Russia is the kind of the biggest repository of mineral wealth in the former Soviet Union. The metals and minerals that the global industrial economy runs on, right? Copper for, for wiring, cobalt for the batteries of the future and so on. This is a huge, huge prize. And then they expand from there. They came to London. They package this up as a multinational corporation and they list it with huge fanfare on the London Stock Exchange. The Eurasian Natural Resources Corporation, ENRC. Very quickly, it's in the FTSE 100, you know, the list of the, like, the 100 most valuable companies on the UK Stock Exchange. And they also go and buy up a great many more mines in Africa, in places like Congo. Now, there were lots of people asking questions about the nature of this company, about its business. And the Serious Fraud Office had a long-running investigation in the UK, a criminal case, into allegations of corruption. Now, that's never been proven. Indeed, that case has been recently dropped by the Serious Fraud Office with no charges brought. But while I was doing my reporting, I was trying to look into these questions of huge public interest into uh, a major criminal corruption case in the UK, and, and that's what I did. So you're investigating this story. You report on it and research it for your book, Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. When did it occur to you that, actually, it could get you into a lot of trouble? <laughs> when you're preparing to publish a book, you go through a less than relaxing process called the legal review, mm. contacting everyone who's in the book and saying, basically, is this true? This is a very important process, right, to try and do it properly because you're trying to just establish the truth of every fact and every sentence in a book or an article or whatever it may be. Um, anyway, for Kleptopia, the, the legal correspondence was round twice the length of the book. Right, so the response you got back yeah. was far more than the words you'd actually written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got about 600 pages worth of legal correspondence, a lot of it very menacing. So we had a bit of a to and fro with, with ENRC's lawyers. Then the book came out. And then after that, after we publish, that's when we start getting more and more letters from ENRC. And the threats keep coming right up to the deadline to sue. So you get a year after publication to sue for defamation. And we were getting close to the end of that year. I was more concentrated on the imminent arrival of my second kid. Right, so a busy time for you. Busy time, yeah. And then this letter comes through, right? And it's saying, we're suing you. And what's baffling is that it's saying, we're suing you for something that I've never said and never written. But nonetheless, they're suing me saying, you have said... 
that ENRC Limited, which is a holding company, right? It's a cog in a corporation. That this holding company has gone around murdering people who might have known about this suspected corruption. And then it's serious. Then you're off to the High Court and the amount of money potentially involved suddenly into the millions. Juliet Garside, you're The Guardian's deputy business editor, and you've been looking into these types of lawsuits facing reporters like Tom, which some people call slaps. What does that mean exactly, and what makes a slap a slap? A slap stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation, and it's a concept that comes from the US, where they have some rules around what kind of lawsuits you can bring. And it's often defined here as... A lawsuit that's abusive, that's necessarily brought by someone who's got fairly deep pockets because you can't get legal aid for this sort of thing. And it's designed to shut down free speech. So it could be brought against a journalist, but it could also be brought against a whistleblower or an MP or an NGO, anyone who's trying to expose an individual, hold them to account, criticise them. And do we have any idea of how widespread this is? I mean, when it comes to journalists... How many of them are being affected by this? Most of the journalists I work with have been affected. So if you're investigating powerful individuals, wealthy individuals, you will have had a letter like this. There has for many, many years been silence around this issue. And there are a lot of complicated reasons for that. One is that when you get a letter threatening legal action, quite often it says private and confidential, not for publication. But also, I think journalists who end up having to spend a lot of time preparing for court, who have their reputation and their work questioned in this way, can sometimes feel a sense of shame, of embarrassment, like somehow they're the ones who've done something wrong. And being afraid that talking about it would incite further legal action. So given all that, do we have any idea of how many journalists have been at the receiving end of a so-called slap? So there's a really good study in 2020 um, called the Unsafe for Scrutiny Report by the Foreign Policy Centre. This was a really landmark report because it started to lift the lid on the problem. They talked to over 60 journalists around the world, 40 countries, and they found that among these British and overseas journalists, 70% had experienced some kind of threat and harassment for their work. And of those, 70% said that they had received legal threats. And it's not just... British journalists that get threatened with UK court action. The burned wreck of Daphne Caruana Galicia's car lies in a Maltese field, flung over a wall by an explosion which killed the journalist. After um, the murder in 2017 of a, a journalist in Malta called Daphne Caruana Galicia, and it was a case that I'd investigated that The Guardian had published a lot about. And when Daphne died, there were over 40 outstanding lawsuits against her. And she had also been threatened with legal action in the UK for what she was writing in Malta about Maltese politics. She didn't really have a readership outside Malta. You said 40 lawsuits, so it's entirely possible for a journalist to be facing multiple legal actions at the same time. Yes, it is. And Juliet, why are our courts such a hotspot for this kind of legal action? because we've done a lot as a country over the years to attract the kind of money and the kind of people that bring these lawsuits. Our golden visa scheme was very popular with wealthy individuals in the Soviet bloc. Visa 
visas. Since 2008, entrepreneurs, so-called golden visas, have offered a pathway to British citizenship for those promising to invest at first £1 million and later £2 million. And the scheme has had a startlingly high success rate. From 2008-19, only 9% of golden visa applications were rejected, far less than, say, asylum claims. But according to Spotlight... You could buy a fast track to UK residency and ultimately UK citizenship. That gives people a lot of a stake in the UK. And our libel laws are particularly unfriendly to journalists. So in the UK, you the journalists have to prove that what you wrote was correct whereas the burden of proof in many other countries is on the plaintiff, on the person bringing the lawsuit. We also have a very strange system in the UK where in a defamation suit, for example, the judge has to decide what the article meant or what a statement that's a whistleblower say meant. So they have to have a like a meaning decision. And sometimes if if the complainant has very good lawyers, they can argue you meant all sorts of things that you never actually meant to say. So you end up having to defend something you never meant to say in the first place. So that, that's a sort of weird quirk of the law. And then finally, it's just prohibitively expensive. It's one of the most expensive places to be sued in the world. As a flaw in the UK, if you're going to trial, it's it's half a million and damages go upwards from there. And so libel lawyers and their clients know that if a journalist is threatened with legal action, they won't play chicken and go to court. They will amend the story, take it down, do whatever they can to make the legal action go away. So we've heard from Tom, but there have been other high-profile instances of similar types of lawsuits. Can you tell me about those and whether it's usually the individual who is exposed to the huge costs that they involve? What marks out a slap suit from a normal suit where someone may have a perfectly legitimate right to complain about how they've been portrayed in the press is the kind of the abusive, vindictive nature of the legal action. You'll take the journalists themselves to court rather than their publication, which puts their own finances, their house, at risk. There is a really good and probably the most extraordinary example of a slap case that I've come across was when the Russian warlord Evgeny Prigozhin, who funded and set up the Wagner mercenary network that assembled armies, huge armies, to invade Ukraine, he took action against the founder of Bellingcat, which is a brilliant investigations media outfit. They're headquartered in the Netherlands, Bellingcat. And actually, Amsterdam's become the location of choice now for a lot of independent investigative outfits. They would much rather move here. They publish in English. They have to go there. It's too dangerous here. So we're losing jobs because of this, the way that our legal profession behaves towards journalists and free speech. But Goshen decided that he would sue the founder of Bellingcat, Elliot Higgins, and he would sue in the UK where Higgins lives. And the extraordinary thing about this case is that at the time, Prigozhin was already under UK sanctions. He was sanctioned because of the Wagner Group's mercenary activity in Libya. These are the pictures Libyan media says show Russian mercenaries leaving Tripoli's front line. They were meant to shift the balance of power on the battlefield in favour of Libyan warlord Khalifa Haftar. So when you're under sanctions, if you want to spend money in the UK, you have to get permission from the sanctions office. So he went to the sanctions office and his lawyers appear to have been granted permission to receive fees from him to bring this case to court. And it made its way to court. Um, And one more extraordinary thing about this case is Prigozhin was suing because he was complaining that Elliot Higgins had identified him as connected to the Wagner Group. So, he was, <laughs> so uh, something that's been reported widely. And that he was already sanctioned for. So the, the British government was giving him permission to bring a case that would undermine the British government's reason for sanctioning him. 
And it was only when the war began and the law firm dropped him as a client that the, the, the case hit the skids. But presumably, had Elliot faced a lot of legal fees by that point? Had it? Yes. So he was left £70,000 out of pocket. And it seems he's unable to claim that back off Prigozhin, who's dead, or the law firm who no longer work for him. Any other sort of egregious examples of this that you've seen? I mean, that's pretty phenomenal in itself. So there's the case of Catherine Belton. Uh, she's a brilliant journalist who wrote one of the definitive books on Putin's rise to power. It's, um, it's called Putin's People. She was awarded an MBE for her journalism earlier this year. But in 2021, there was what was described at the time, I think, as a legal pylon against her and her publisher, HarperCollins. Three oligarchs, Roman Abramovich and two others, and a Russian state oil company called Rosneft, they all brought separate cases against her. And in the end, all of these were either settled or discontinued. There were amendments to her book, and HarperCollins did apologise to Abramovich. But the point is that all of the major claims that she'd made in the book remained. And the upshot was that HarperCollins, the publisher, spent $1.5 just on the pre-trial hearings, just on defending those. And if it had actually gone to trial, um, they estimate the whole thing could have cost as much as $5 million. So, Tom... The letter arrives saying you're being sued for defamation by this mining company, ENRC. Can you tell me about the full extent of what you were facing? So what you're instantly up against is one of the very best, most expensive UK law firms, working with one of the best, most expensive American law firms, taking you to court. Now, the Financial Times, the paper I was with at the time, and HarperCollins, the publisher of the book, they were tremendous. And they stood strong. And it was always the case that it was going to be a joint defence, right? So they were going to cover the costs and we were going to be all in it together. But I could also see the tactic of trying to say that I wasn't what I said I was, insinuating that I'm corrupt, that I'd been secretly paid off by these oligarchs' enemies to throw mud at them. And I know that's not true. But what is really terrifying in this situation is that you're suddenly pulled into a kind of Alice in Wonderland world where it can start to feel that the truth is whatever the richest guy in the room says it is. Mm. But the really serious part of this is this attempt to locate and identify and unmask sources. The US law firm they were using, they'd gone to a court without notifying me or my publishers and asked a judge to give a subpoena to demand that my American publisher hand over details about the book and, crucially, about the sources of the book. Oh, wow. I mean, leave aside sleepless nights for a journalist leave aside you know smears about me made in open court this is an attempt to unmask sources for really serious investigative work about questions of life and death that obviously gave me a huge shudder and we had to do everything we could to protect those sources what was the worst case scenario you were facing in your mind and weren't you terrified given as you said how expensive and how experienced and how brilliant these lawyers for the opposition are this is the real subtlety of what they call lawfare, is the psychological element of it. There's always the nagging feeling of, what if their version of reality prevails? What if there's a judge who sides with them? You're just two parties going to court to argue it out. Then, you know, I lose my house. You know, my life is kind of torn apart. Well, Tom, tell me about how this plays out in court, because it's not a situation that any journalist ever wants to find themselves in. How did you get through it and what happened? Well, 
February 2022. So by now we're 18 months after the book's come out. Six months since the, the writ has served. Six months of kind of almost all-consuming preparation. And then we've got our first day in court for an initial hearing where we are saying, throw this thing out. Mm. We never said that a holding company murdered anyone. Anyway, into court we go and we sit down and ENRC's lawyer, the oligarch's company's lawyer, is just taken ill. Just so happens that there we are. So it's complete anticlimax. After five minutes, we have to postpone. Anyway, a month later, we gather once again, sitting in court for what we thought would be a day's hearing and then a long wait for an initial judgment on, you know, whether the case could go past the first stage. We could still be years off, millions of pounds off an actual trial. Anyway, there I was sitting next to Arabella Pike, my completely indefatigable publisher, who'd also published Belton, also published Catherine's book and had been in that in the same court with her a few months earlier. Right. And and a fantastic legal team. And you could pick up quite early on from the judge's questioning to the lawyer representing the oligarch's company that he, he could see this was kind of farcical. You have this question of what has actually been said? And the lawsuit says, I had written that this holding company had murdered three people. And <laughs> nowhere did it say what they said it said. So it's, it doesn't matter what one side or the other thinks. A judge will sit and read it right. and say, OK, this is what a reasonable person, admittedly dressed in wigs and a robe, will would think this means. And then the judge said, actually, I'm going to give my judgment after lunch. Right. It's very, very rare. Normally they go away and consider it. And then we thought, oh, hang on a second. Maybe this could be good news. So over the road we go to, I believe it was the Pret. <laughs> the, the glamorous lunch of kings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just opposite that that extraordinary Gothic building, the the Royal Courts of Justice. And I've been so many times as a reporter. Anyway, we had our sandwiches and um, back in we went and the judge absolutely demolished the case. Read large parts of my book into the judicial record. That's been and, satisfying. <laughs> well, 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 when it started to become clear that he was throwing this case out, Arabella, the publisher, just started punching me in the leg. <laughs> <laughs> and within what felt like minutes, the case had been completely trashed and thrown out. That must have felt like a big exhale. Yeah, it actually literally was a big exhale. I, I, I remember breathing out for what seemed like a minute. That terrifying feeling that somehow I was going to leave my sources exposed. Mm. Um, and that's the big duty is to protect them. <laughs> How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling delighted, especially on behalf of the absolutely courageous sources who helped me write this book. I'm very pleased that this attempt to censor this book has failed. So the thing is, it really doesn't matter who the oligarchs are. It really doesn't matter what the company is. Yeah, I write about all sorts of oligarchs and all sorts of multinational companies all over the world. What matters here, right, what the point is, is whether anyone who's got enough money can decide that they are going to be exempt from journalism, right? Whether they're just going to exempt themselves from proper journalism in the public interest and they can use the UK legal system to achieve that. You know, for me, that's what this case demonstrates. It's using a combination of smears and threats and vast costs and so on. And that's what makes it a slap. And the vast majority of these cases, the journalist or the whistleblower or whoever the target may be, is not as lucky as this. Not as lucky to have really well-resourced, strong, courageous publishers behind them. A lot of the time, you've just got no choice but to fault. Because you get the letter in an increasingly cash-strapped news organisation, as we all are, representing someone of limitless wealth, effectively. Mm. What are you actually going to do? Are you going to fight? Are you going to think, 
can't afford it. So when you pick up your newspaper, don't think what's in it, think what's not in it. That's the real insidious effect. Not what does get printed, but what doesn't. Coming up, the fight back against slaps. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus. Julia, it's really sinister to hear what Tom and others have gone through. How has our industry responded to these kinds of lawsuits? So it took a long time for us to start talking to each other about it. And the the death of Daphne and the publicity we gave to the legal threats against her galvanised people to use the word slap. We never used the word slap. We didn't have a name for what was happening. And media law experts have come together and drawn up a model law for the UK and also one for Europe as well, for the European Parliament, which would make it a lot easier to get these cases dismissed very early on by a judge before costs rack up. And other elements of that model law are punitive damages for people who bring abusive claims and also a cap on on costs so that these claims don't become very expensive. And all of those things are designed to deter slap cases from being brought in the first place. So they've drawn up this model law. And then over the summer, 60 newspaper editors and the head of ITN um, and a few other organisations like Bloomberg signed a letter calling on the government to put legislation in the King's speech to use this anti-slap law uh, to bring it through Parliament before the next general election. The other thing that's happening is that journalists are being encouraged to complain to the solicitor's watchdog 
the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority, and it has acknowledged that there's a problem. It's produced guidelines, it published them last year, for law firms on how to spot abusive cases and how to avoid taking them on, on behalf of clients. And it's investigating 40 complaints brought to it by journalists, whistleblowers and others about slap cases. Now, it's actually been sitting on these cases for a while, um, for over a year in some instances. So we're looking for something, you know, some conclusions from the SRA. And Julia, we have had a significant breakthrough in the fight against possible slaps. New legislation was passed into law last week that, in theory at least, should give reporters a bit more protection against these kinds of lawsuits. How big a moment is this? And what exactly does the new law do? This is a really big moment. It's the government recognising, not just through the words of ministers, but actually in legislation, that slaps are a real thing. The term wasn't even in use a few years ago, so we've come a long way. It's not perfect, however. One problem is it only applies in cases where the claimant is accused of some kind of economic crime. And so it wouldn't have applied, for example... Uh, in the case of Prigozhin and Bellingcat, where he was being accused of being a warlord. And the protections aren't quite as strong as uh, campaigners would like them. There's probably not enough, there's nothing in there about damages either. So if someone brings a vexatious suit, the campaigners say they should be made to pay exemplary damages, large damages. We think that there's room for tightening it, but certainly also broadening it. This isn't just really about protecting free speech. You know, the government recognises that this is about protecting democracy and announcing the changes. The Justice Minister, Alex Chalk, has said, he was writing last week, uh, welcoming the new legislation, but he has said more is needed. He says that the legislation, when parliamentary time allows, will be introduced to cover more types of cases. So yes, it's not really just about freedom of speech. It's about situations where often every watchdog, every law has failed. And the last line of defence is what you're allowed to put into the public domain to report, you know, to whistleblow, to publish an article, to expose a failure to deal with a particular problem. And that really is about protecting you and me. It's about protecting the public. Tom, throughout all of this... What's it like to operate as a journalist when there are such serious attempts to expose your sources? Right. So as I learned when I discovered that I'd been watched in a car park, you know, you've got to be aware for every meeting, even if you're just meeting some old contact for some fairly anodyne conversation. These days, operating in London, you have to be prepared to carry out the kind of drills I learned to do in Congo or Kazakhstan, or Moscow, wherever it may be. And that's a really chilling thing that I don't think we've quite caught up with. You know, as far as I know, ENRC doesn't know who my sources are. But what this whole episode has shown me is that there's, there's clearly a strategy that's been used in this case, and I think in others, for trying to use the UK's legal system to undermine the very basis of journalism, to undermine relationships between reporters and sources, between reporters and newspapers, and also just to identify sources, identify people who, at great personal risk, with no hope of recognition, are trying to reveal the truth for the greater benefit. I mean, and that's what's most troubling about this for me. And Tom, finally, what happens if these proposed reforms, if these changes, if they don't happen? Look, it comes down to this. It's the rise of the kleptocrats. That's the heart of it. 
how these kleptocrats seize power, how they maintain that power, often brutally, but crucially, how they turn that power into wealth for themselves, often with the help of lawyers, accountants, bankers, in the richest parts of the world, right, in the city of London, in Switzerland, in New York. That's the most important thing we have to, to understand in the, in the global political economy today, for me. And it feeds into all sorts of things, questions of climate change, questions of war. It all focuses on this. Now, who gets to decide what we read about that at the moment includes the oligarchs themselves and their London lawyers. So if this reform stalls, and any reform is better than none, yeah, even if we don't get all the way to perfection, if this reform stalls, then this question, as it gets more and more important, I'd say we're going to read about it less and less and less. So it's as simple as that. It's like, what do we want our news media to be for? If it's to address the most important questions of the day, then you've got to tackle slaps. Tom, thanks so much for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks. That was Tom Burgess and Juliet Garside. My thanks to both of them. You can read more from Juliet Garside about slaps at theguardian.com. Tom Burgess's book, Kleptopia, is out now and available at The Guardian Bookshop. In a statement to The Guardian, lawyers for ENRC rejected any suggestion that the case they brought against Tom Burgess could be defined as a slap. They said it had targeted Burgess personally because, in part, of claims he had made on Twitter and in interviews. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Rose Della Rabiti. Sound design was by Adam Bransbury. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back again on Monday. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.